Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am uh, enjoying our little Easter break that we have been having and school holidays. I do want to say at the outset, it is a Friday afternoon at the moment because that is when Rena and I have found time to record, which says a lot for our social lives, Rena. <laughs> anyway, but what I'm getting at is that my neighbours, who are a bunch of young men, are having a little gathering on their balcony, which is right next to my room where I do our recording. So if you hear some beats and maybe some loud voices and maybe some cheering, no, I do not have a nightclub in my home. It is just Friday <laughs> afternoon and these are the sounds of strata. Funny you should say that, Amanda, because I was actually going to get a glass of wine and I thought <laughs> it's been a really long week. I should have a glass of wine while I'm talking to you on the podcast, but I wasn't sure if that would be appropriate. Hey, why not? Why not? The ideas will be free-flowing, very creative. <laughs> exactly. I will not stop you, Rena. No problem. Why should the neighbours have all the fun? Exactly. Yeah, they tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's jump in to your challenge for this week, Rena. Yeah, so this is a bit of an unusual one, Amanda, because I think many strata managers and owners corporations are involved in debt recovery and, you know, usually there's a process that's followed initially by reminder letters and then eventually um, going to court if necessary to, and getting a judgment. And in this case, um, we were successful in getting a judgment debt against a particular a lot owner who has been a long-standing recalcitrant when it comes to paying levies. So what happens is, you know, she doesn't pay the actual amount accumulates over time and then when it comes to that final step just before judgment's being oh, so after judgment has been entered and the judgment's going to be enforced then she pays the money and this is a very regular cyclical event that's been occurring for many many years and mm. apparently what i've heard is that she also does this with other bills like sydney water and you know they're coming <laughs> into the apartment and yeah so it's, we're not the only debtor that um, has this experience right. so in this particular case, the judgment debt was obtained and they paid the amount and a bit extra actually. They paid a bit more than that because obviously I owe a lot more than that amount. That was just an amount up to a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. But the email has been received from that owner and she said, well, I just want you to allocate the payment that I'm making only to levies. Now, we have outstanding interest that's been incurred over the course of the period where the payment hasn't been made. And we also have some legal expenses, Amanda, which are very reasonable in terms of, you know, the amount of work that was done to obtain that judgment debt. So mm. my question to you is what do we do when an owner comes and says, well, I don't want you to allocate it to anything else but levies when we have successfully obtained a judgment debt and obviously interest has been incurred and that's a statutory amount and I know that 
expenses must be reasonable, as I think we've had this conversation previously. Um, so what do we do in that case, Amanda? Mm, yeah, I have definitely seen this happen before in, a, in situations exactly as you outlined. It is incredibly frustrating for the scheme because they will often be put to expense taking steps to enforce a judgment which will, as you say, be paid at the 11th hour and then those expenses are not going to be recoverable. In a situation where the owner has, I imagine it's an email or a letter where they've enclosed a check or said, I've deposited money to your account and you must only allocate it as I direct, then in my opinion, you must only allocate it as they direct. If they are giving you an express instruction that this payment is only for levies and is not for interest and is not for any other expenses, or perhaps that this payment is only for these levies for this particular period and they nominate the period, then you must follow that instruction. Now, in a situation where you have a judgment debt, so the local court, for example, has decided this is the amount that's due and owing and there is a judgment issued which the lot owner must comply with, that judgment is probably, I would say, well, almost always going to include an amount for expenses. So there's going to be the costs of filing the statement of claim. There's going to be probably strata management costs wrapped up in there for issuing notices. There's going to be lawyer's costs if you have engaged one for doing the work to file the statement of claim and maybe send letters. Generally, as lawyers, we're wrapping all of that up in our application to the local court for an order that an owner pay these levies. So even if you have a judgment debt and you've got a lot owner saying only allocate this to levies, in my view, you can't even allocate that to the expenses part of the judgment debt because they are not levies, they are expenses. So you have to be very careful about that. What I would do in that circumstance, particularly where you have a judgment debt, is to write to the owner to say, as you should be aware, there is a judgment against you for unpaid levies, which includes interest and expenses. It is in this amount, say it's $20,000. You have paid us $25,000. We seek your consent to allocate $20,000 to clear the judgment debt, which covers levies up to this date and these expenses and this amount of interest. And then we will allocate the remaining $5,000 to the last two quarters levies or whatever it is that's outstanding. And then that owner responds and says yes, or they say no. And then you go on to have an argument about that if you need to. Generally in buildings that have strata managers and that are recovering these types of levies, you will be represented by a lawyer. So always, always go back to that lawyer and seek their advice as to what should happen in the specific circumstance. But those are my thoughts in that situation. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had um, instructions, Amanda, from say numerous lot owners to where there's been sort of either a dispute or in one particular case that I'm dealing with at the moment, they don't believe that the opening balances were correct um, and they had made a payment. So we've actually gone back to the auditor who did the audit at the time because we don't even have all the books and records for that time period. So I can't even check the bank statements to even say, yes, we've, there was a payment, but it was allocated to a different lot. So that I understand, but yeah, I'm a bit perplexed when an owner who has a statutory obligation to pay levies and, and interest, and I understand perhaps expenses, they may want to fight about them, but obviously they have to be deemed to be reasonably incurred. And I'm sure that's a different argument. But what you're saying is obviously you obviously cannot allocate those amounts to anything except for levies and obviously seek the advice of the lawyer and and then see what happens after that. If they, if they refuse to agree, then I suppose it's a different argument. Yeah, that's right. And just to be clear, if the owner just pays 
and says nothing, then allocate it, you know, to the latest outstanding, which I think is what strata managers generally do. They just allocate mm. payments to whatever the, the earliest debt is and follow on from that, and that may include interest and expenses as well. But yeah. where there is an express instruction for money to be used in a certain way, then you do need to follow that instruction. That's not yeah. to say you can't go back and say, hey, in case you didn't know, you might as well clear the judgment debt because we're about to go and file bankruptcy proceedings or whatever it is. But yes, it's important not to act contrary to those instructions. Yeah. I suppose the other issue is that, that the Ernest Corporation obviously hasn't had the benefit of that cash for some time. And also ha- it has paid those expenses to recover the levy. So I suppose it's one of those things that you're saying has to be dealt with at a future time. Yeah. If that person says, no, you don't have my consent to allocate it to expenses, but only maybe just interest, they migrate perhaps to interest amount. And then the Ernest Corporation's already incurred those costs and it's already been out of pocket. So mm. I mean, I don't know if you want to have going to have to have another legal argument about the costs. Yeah. Well, what would happen is if your judgment debt included expenses, and this owner is saying, "I only want the component of the judgment that contains levies to be paid." Yes. Well, they're, they're going to have a partially paid judgment, so this yeah. part of the judgment will still be owing, and then the owners' corporation is free to go ahead and enforce that oh. unpaid part of the judgment. Okay, that's an interesting. That's the uh, situation. Well, yeah, that's good. And maybe explaining that to the lot owner will get some traction. So to say, you got a $20,000 judgment debt, you've told me you only want us to pay 15,000 of that because that's the levies component. We'll do that, but we'll still have five grand and you will be issued with a garnishee order, an examination notice. You'll still be in litigation with us. So that's not going to help you. Yeah, that's a great idea. Actually, I like that idea, Amanda. That's good. (laughs) Yes. Just just forming that one on the run here. (laughs) Sounds good to me too. Yeah. All right, so let us know how you go with that one. Yeah, I will actually. I'll keep all our listeners posted on that one. Thank you. My challenge for this week, this is a question from a follower on our Facebook page. If you haven't headed across to find the Your Strata Property Facebook page, make sure you do that. Lots of fun happening over there. And it's a question, Rena, about building insurance. And mm-hmm. I am not sure that we've really got into this on the podcast. We have been doing this for about three years now, and I don't think we've had a detailed discussion about the requirements for Strata Building Insurance under our Act. And this uh, message on the Facebook page was, please, Rena and Amanda, cover off what is required for building insurance. And the specific question, which uh, we can probably deal with pretty promptly from this person, was that they'd like to know how much their individual unit is insured for. And if they don't think it's enough, then how do they get extra coverage? Interesting question, because I think I had had the same conversation today with a prospective um, company title building, actually, that have asked me to provide a proposal. And the first thing I think people need to understand, which I think perhaps isn't understood very well, is that the building insurance covers the construction of the building if there was a total replacement required. So a lot of people look at their building sum insured and think, oh, hang on, like my apartment's worth, you know, one million and the whole building's only insured for three. So that can't be right. So then you have to explain, well, it's not the market value, it's a construction cost. So that's one thing. And only evaluation can really provide um, certainty in order for the Ernst Corporation to really know whether the cost that they're insured for is actually accurate at the time. Because obviously there's an escalation clause sometimes in some of the um, valuations, because if you only value at today's date, and then in 
in the three years you don't value it a man, the building a man, well, you know, obviously the, the building costs do change over time. They might go up or they might go down. They might stay the same. So it's based on building activity and building costs. So that's one thing. In terms of getting extra insurance, I don't believe that's possible because you can't sort of double insure. Yes. And I think that many times when there's sort of grey areas in terms of insurance claims where people have their own, you know, contents insurance for certain things and they'll say, well, they want perhaps we've had to provide definitive emails to our clients to say, no, this is not covered under strata insurance and therefore they are then able to claim on their contents insurance and vice versa. Mm. So I think perhaps maybe um, the questioner on Facebook needs to maybe perhaps understand the difference between, yeah, the the market value and Mm. the building insured value, which is obviously includes fixtures and fittings, um, et cetera. It's not just about the market value of the actual apartment. Yeah. The place to look in New South Wales in our legislation is section 160 of the Strata Schemes Management Act, as well as section 161. And 160 is the section that says that the owner's corporation must insure the building. And the definition of building is quite generous under our legislation, isn't it, Rena? It's not just uh, what we would usually consider the common property. It does include the fixtures and fittings, as you say. Um, Uh, If we had to rebuild the building and we had to get everybody moved back in and living as they were, then they need bathrooms and they need toilets and vanities and they need kitchen cabinets and sinks. So the owner's corporation's building insurance does cover all of those things. It also includes removal of debris. So obviously, you know, and also if there's any permit costs, because depending on the location of the building, if it's on a very busy street or highway, then, you know, you may need that part of the highway to be partitioned while reconstruction is occurring on some parts of the building. And it also allows for the remuneration of architects and other persons whose services are necessary to basically assist with the rebuilding and the replacement, repair or restoration. So yep, that is it. So that's all in Section 161. And just on that point about contents insurance, in my experience, Rena, I have found some contents insurers to be quite generous when it comes to claims, for example, where there's water damage or flood damage. Mm. Um, the owner's corporation's insurer, particularly in a case of flood, might cover areas of the common property and then the contents insurer covers quite a bit in my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen them cover kitchen cabinets and things like that, that that has been damaged. So do always make sure that you've got contents insurance and in a case of some catastrophic damage, make sure you're talking to both the owner's corporation and their insurer as well as your contents insurer. And the other thing, Amanda, just to, to point out in what you said about the generosity of, of contents insurers is that let's say um, there's a fire in your apartment, for example, or a, or a flood that's in the kitchen basically um, has to be rebuilt. And let's say you've had a you know really nice kitchen, you know, you've got like high-end dishwasher and, and stove and et cetera, and whereas the fixtures and fittings at the Owners Corporation standard insurance policy wouldn't cover like Miele and all those high-end brands. It's going to cover like normal brands. So what I've had experience in previously is that let's say the Owners Corporation will only pay say $1,000 for a stove and an oven, then the contents insurer will kick in for the difference. Mm. If there's any, you know, like if you say, well, hang on, I didn't, I want the same as what I had before. Yep. And in some cases, some insurers actually require the owner's corporation to disclose expensive fit-outs. So especially I think in like commercial and retail where there are expensive fit-outs that are done, like say in restaurants, 
um, you know, in the city, which are underneath, you know, strata buildings and form part of the strata scheme, normally those have to be disclosed because obviously your standard policy is not going to cover expensive restaurant fit out. So, yep. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Very interesting topic and no doubt there'll be some more questions arising from that. Another little tip is to make sure you do keep your building valuation up to date. I have seen a few buildings who forget to get updated valuations over time and we don't want the building to burn down with a 10-year-old valuation and to be underinsured. Well, now on Amanda, with the new legislation, there's actually no requirement. Before, you had to sort of have a valuation no less than every five years, whereas yeah. now that, that's been removed. So Yeah. So strata managers, don't forget to keep your buildings on top of that mm, as well. Exactly. Okay. Let's change gears and chat about your win for this week, Rena. I had an interesting experience happen, Amanda, where sometimes you think when you've been in strata for so long and you've had so many different types of experiences that aren't part of the normal run and mill of strata that nothing new could ever happen again, but it has. So I was at a meeting, uh, chairing the meeting for the AGM. I knew that there was going to be some issues because one of the owners who was sort of now proxy farming, you know, with proxy farming now you just have to distribute your proxies amongst different people as opposed to just keep them to yourself now. Anyway, and I could see, you know, they're all pre-filled and, and they were for people that had never, ever turned up, lots that had never, ever even given a proxy, which was all fine. I mean, these things happen. Anyway, and so the owner had said that they weren't able to come to the meeting and so I thought, oh, okay. The next minute the owner does turn up, which I was a bit surprised, and then there's somebody else that was with him and it was actually a lawyer. And he actually came but he wasn't going to vote. He had given his proxy to the lawyer. Anyway, so the chairperson, who wasn't me, basically ruled the proxies out of order because he had actually seen the signatures of those people that had allegedly given proxies and he said there's three different versions of the same signature. So obviously he ruled them out of order. And the lawyer then took um, him to task and myself and said that basically, you know, you can't do that. You have to take a vote on it. And my advice was, well, no, this is a procedural matter. The chairperson doesn't have to put the adoption of any proxies to the vote. So, yeah, so it was, I mean, it obviously would have caused a different outcome had those proxies been allowed to be used. But um, I just think, Amanda, that's an interesting one where it was a good outcome in the end because at least, you know, people weren't able to unduly exercise proxies that were, weren't validly sort of obtained. I think, I don't know if they were, I don't know. the. Yeah, the, they were questionable. Yeah, questionable. And, um, yeah, but I think it's interesting for five managers to perhaps understand that, if someone is challenging you or the chairperson um, in relation to the validity of proxies, then this is not actually something that needs a vote. It's a procedural matter and the chairperson has that authority. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So this lawyer was saying in order to declare a proxy invalid, the meeting you need to needs go to, to a vote. vote. Yeah. yeah and I even that. said to him, I said, I said, with all due respect, you don't seem to know very much about strata and he said yeah I don't <laughs> I wasn't a strata lawyer I agree with you oh how funny yeah that I certainly haven't seen that before um in fact quite the opposite our legislation actually requires all motions to have notice so all motions yeah. to be included on the agenda unless they are motions to amend a motion exactly. that is already on the agenda yeah. so that that's um I think the short answer to that so yeah good result there yeah Okay, I am bringing you this week in the category of my win a case that I was having a little read of a few weeks ago. This is a case from the Supreme Court in New South Wales and it was published in about February this year, 2019. I'm going to make my best attempt to pronounce the name of the applicant, which is Kadibzad, K-H-A-D-I-V-Z. 
Z-A-D. I am sure that is not how you pronounce it. And I will include a link to this case in the show notes. But I wanted to bring you this case because it's a good one about common property rights bylaws or what we used to call exclusive use bylaws and the requirement that there be lot owner consent for such a bylaw to be valid. So this is a case that was considering the old 1996 Act, but we have identical requirements in our new 2015 Act, so it's certainly very relevant. Amanda, can you just explain, when you mean by lot owner consent, do you mean the consent of all lot owners? Because obviously you'd have to have the consent of that lot owner in the first place, wouldn't you? Yes. So it's the consent of, this case was about having the consent of the owner who had the benefit of a car parking exclusive use bylaw to repeal that bylaw. So the building repealed the bylaw by special resolution, therefore taking away what was quite a valuable right. And the lot owner said, I never consented to this. Now, the really interesting thing about this case is this all happened in 1999. Oh, so that's geez. 20 years ago. Years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago, this happened. The applicant in this case had actually purchased the lot around that time, around the same time, 1999 or early 2000, when this bylaw was repealed. They have somewhere along the lines become aware that this has happened and that there was no consent either from them or from the former lot owner. And they have engaged a lawyer to argue what was very much a a legalistic case, so not about the facts. Everybody agreed on the facts. It was about whether the bylaw could have been validly repealed without the consent of the lot owner. And the applicant took the position, well, the legislation says that you need the consent of the owner who's got the benefit of the bylaw if you're going to be removing that right. We never consented. There's no evidence of the owners before us consenting. The owners' corporation agrees there was no consent. So court, what do you say about this? And the court ended up pointing to the section of the legislation, which is now section 143, subsection 4, which says Mm -hmm. after two years from the making of a common property rights bylaw, It is conclusively presumed that all conditions and preliminary steps precedent to the making of the bylaw were complied with and performed. So the court said that is a very clear statement that after two years, we just assume that consent was provided and you cannot challenge the validity of the bylaw on the grounds that there was some procedural defect like lack of written consent. Jeez. Now, there is an earlier case, which is the case of James, where the Supreme Court said something very similar, but it wasn't binding in that case. It wasn't relevant to the decision in question in that case. But the Supreme Court back then said the same thing. And that was then relied on in this 2019 case for the Supreme Court to decide this issue in that way. And lawyers have been a little bit uncertain about this, perhaps until now. I think most of us have said, yes, we think that's the case. If there wasn't any consent, then if your application is brought more than two years after the repeal, then you're going to have a problem because of this subsection, which says everything is presumed to have been done properly. But now we have a very clear statement from the Supreme Court that says, yep, that is what that section of the legislation means, both under the 96 Act and under our, well, let's say this, the 2015 Act uses exactly the same words. So it will be very persuasive in any similar question under the 2015 Act. Well, that's very interesting, Amanda, because um, when you go to like 
LRS now, formerly the LPI, and they want you to, to submit all these forms when you're um, lodging in the consolidation. They even ask you, like, for even old schemes, you, if you haven't lodged an initial period expiry form, they won't even let you register it. So I'm really surprised that there's no sort of oversight by a statutory authority like LPI or LRS, as they're now called, when you're submitting, say, a repeal of a bylaw, that even though the minutes would have been produced with the bylaw to show evidence of that occurring, that they wouldn't have asked for the consent of the owner at the time. So what you're saying is, in a sense, LRS just assume that when you submit it, you've got all the necessary consents. Yeah, LRS never ask to see, in my experience anyway, never ask to see the consent forms, um, but it is certainly something that we are very careful to tell owners to make sure that they submit these consent forms and that when we are preparing bylaws on behalf of owners, um, we just include a, a template form as a matter of course now for common property rights bylaws. And I think strata managers are pretty well on top of this, that if it's a common property rights bylaw being made, you need the consent if it's being repealed you need the consent of the lot owner if it's being amended. Well, I don't think people understand a man about the repealing. Like ah. I can tell you, I, would, I doubt that they would understand. Because I mean, obviously when you're submitting a bylaw and it's you and you're the lot owner, then of course, you know, you're consenting even if you don't fill out a form to say I'm true, consenting. True, true. It wouldn't be controversial. Yeah. yeah. So here's my bylaw. I want to, you know, please put on the agenda of the next general meeting or please convene a general meeting on my behalf and, you know, I'll pay for it, et cetera. But I think when it comes to, I mean, I've always told um, people that, that have tried to repeal those things that you can't do that, that they consent. That's because I just know that, not because, you know, and I don't, don't think many people would have actually known that, especially whoever was the manager for this particular scheme mm, uh, okay. back in 1999. I mean, you know, did they say to the person, to the owners corporation, who was the instigator of this particular resolution and, and did they have legal advice about it? And I wonder if now that this clear statement of the law has been made, you might see some buildings attempting to quietly repeal these <laughs> <Exactly>. bylaws <laughs> without consent and wait for two years to pass. I'm not giving anyone any ideas, I'm sure. But that is the danger, really, of this kind of... It is, actually. When, when it's so explicitly mentioned, Amanda, in the, in the legislation, as you've said, both the, the former and the current, I think it does sort of, to me, raise a bit of a red flag when people are saying, well, you've only got two years and we're going to assume that if that time has elapsed, then that consent has been provided. Bad luck. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, I uh, I read that case and thought it was a good one to bring to the podcast. I will put a link to it in the show notes for this episode over at yourstrataproperty.com.au so you can click through and have a read. I think that is all from me this week, Rena. Anything else from you? All good, Amanda. That is it. You're welcome to come over and, and join my nightclub that I have going <laughs> on over here. I, I, have some, I have a glass of wine first. Go on. Yes, okay, why not? Or two. <laughs> or two. You, you'll need it after a busy week and another one to come, no doubt. Exactly. Enjoy. Enjoy your weekend. I know there's many of you listening to this. It is not the weekend, but don't feel bad. There will be one coming up soon. Exactly. We're off to enjoy ours. <laughs> thanks, Rena. Okay, thanks, Amanda. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?